Live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world, you are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Nahum Klegman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach. Welcome to Episode 8 of the From Entrepreneur. And today I'm very proud to have a very special guest, Gary Levitt, who's the founder of Mad Mimi. Gary is an entrepreneur. His company was sold out to GoDaddy back in 2014. He was a musician, uh, you know, semi-pro uh, skateboarder. He was from South Africa, lived in Boston, now lives in Yerushalayim. Uh, it's fantastic to have you. Gary, thank you for joining the show. Sure, thank you. So, you know, one of the things, you know, I love about the Mad Mimi story is that Mad Mimi is a product I was using and thousands of people were using before we knew there was even a from person behind it. You know, it's just one of those products that you're using naturally because it was so fantastic. And uh, then rumors started years ago, you know, hearing that there's a from person behind it. And, uh, you know, we all celebrated when it was sold to GoDaddy last year. So, uh, you know, thank you for the inspiration and really, really exciting stuff. Cool. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, part of the core thing that made it possible to uh, be, you know, I guess true to myself um, was the opportunity to be able to work remotely. You know, Mad Mimi doesn't have any physical offices anywhere. And I think one of the, the key features of that is being able to have a, a company that operates where, you know, th- there's very little distinction on, you know, how people express themselves outwardly, you know, whether they are, you know, observant and have a long beard or whether they, uh, you know, are whoever they want to be. So yeah, uh, the yeah I, I didn't definitely you know I didn't wear I don't know is the term wearing a hat on your shoulder or whatever but <laughs> yeah I, I've always enjoyed kind of being a bit on the down low uh, so, in any case. So really, so Mad maybe never had proper offices. It was always uh, run remotely. Yeah, and still today there's no offices. You know, there's wow. just under fifty odd employees working from all over the world, from all over the place, all over the U.S. and uh, Latvia and Germany, uh, Israel all over the place. That's fantastic. I mean, I know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've read the four hour work week by now, if you haven't, but was uh, Tim Ferriss inspiring to that way of work? I know he promotes that a lot. Books like that, I I generally find the title to be, you know, what I gained from the book. I I did not read Tim Ferriss' book. I did watch a few moments of a TED talk of Tim Ferriss and I kind of, you know, it was enough for me. One book I did read was actually a a book called Getting Real that was written by uh, Jason Fried. And he founded uh, 37 Signals. 37 Signals. I was like, (laughs) yeah, whenever you have numbers in a company name, it tends to get a little bit murky. But that was a helpful book. But, you know, I've typically stayed away from ideologies that I kind of read in books or fancy kind of, uh, you know, chokhmah that I gain from other entrepreneurs or whatever. And, you know, I kind of put it in my back pocket in a way, but also... I've never felt compelled to follow a map laid out by somebody else. I've, I've kind of been determined to create my own map as I go. So when you started Man Mimi, the plan from the beginning was to be a remote business? Yeah, that was the plan from the beginning. You know, I was a busboy in restaurants for a long time in New York City. I was not observant at that time. I became more observant. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what happens to you when you're a busboy. In, <laughs> you in, become more in, in Soho, yeah, you start to ask yourself, like, what in the world am I doing? Oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, well, becoming so more. Back, that's an amazing story. I want to backtrack a bit and 
then we'll get to the, uh, you know, how Mad Mimi got started and where you were holding and stuff. But sure. So you were born and raised in South Africa. Yep. Now, Johannesburg? About an hour out of Johannesburg. I on a farm area that was about an hour from the city okay. called Knoppies Lachter, which, uh, yeah, pretty much no one knows about. <laughs> <laughs> and so when did you move to the States? So I went to Boston um, to study music uh, at Berkeley Music School. Oh, wow. When I was 18. And from there, I, you know, kind of was intent on making my career to be a jazz bass guitarist. Wow. From there, I moved to New York to be a <laughs> jazz bass guitarist. And that's how I got my busboying gig. So basically, you're bu- yeah. busboying in the morning. Busboying gig, yeah. You, well, not quite in the morning. <laughs> it was sort of like a 14-hour shift that I did four days a week so that I could afford to live in New York and play jazz. Wow. And then I transitioned from there into producing, well, for better or for worse, producing commercial music, right. which uh, I did not enjoy. Was that and like, uh, jingles and stuff like that? I mean, jingles, be- yeah. So take away, you used your creativity, but there's no artistic talent behind it, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no artistic, there was no nothing. Yeah, it wasn't. It's basically when you're good at something and then you have to do something to make money that is not very good, right. you really derive zero satisfaction, there's zero growth involved. And uh, I did music for the Oprah Winfrey show for about a year. Oh, wow. Uh, see, I didn't see that on LinkedIn. <laughs> so, right, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> I, maybe I should update my profile. But, <laughs> I, yeah, I did that and it was fine. And then from there, I, I thought maybe, you know, I'll make a, an application for musicians since I thought that I understood musicians where I really don't. I kind of only understand myself. I love I. But, yeah, I, I started thinking maybe I'll, I'll make this app for musicians where they can kind of create a uh, online press kit for themselves and right. then um that changed into email i mean that's obviously a giant summary but right so i mean yeah. did you have any type of technology background you were just like a music guy and said hey there's this need and you know i may as well create it yeah just a music person and i saw a need there was another company at the time called sonic bids i think they are still around and i thought you know let me try and do this in a way that would appeal to me so started and then i created this user interface uh where you could kind of stack mp3s and biographical details and sort of drag the little modules that you stacked up below and above the you know others next to them and at some point about six months into the development you know and it wasn't so simple i mean i'm obviously leaving out a whole piece here the getting started piece i had zero technological background i read a book called head first html and css (laughs) It's brilliant. It's such a fun book. It is such a fun book. I read that book. I taught myself CSS and HTML. I wow. designed mockups. I actually designed Mad Mimi. Oh, really? Um, and coded the entire design, implemented everything. It, eventually, I mean, it, it took a good year before I was, I wrote CSS that was, you know, functionally palatable. Right. But yeah, I had no money. I just hired a developer. Okay, so you were yeah. busboying 14 hours a day, four days a week. You were doing your jazz at night, and somehow you found a time to build a multi-million dollar technology. You know, in a sentence, I was playing jazz, I was busboying, and then I started busboying a lot, and then I got sick of busboying, so I started doing commercial music and jingles, which was oh. a total effective failure because I made no money. I think the most money I ever made in my entire life until I was 28 years old was, I think, $18,000. Um, and that was the year that I got married and had a kid. And then I started teaching myself how to program and started this website, the idea for musicians. I raised $10,000 because I thought that that's how much it costs to produce an internet venture. I raised $10,000. Then 
I looked online because I had discovered a little Ruby icon on my web host, which was at the time Media Temple. And okay. I thought, and I clicked on the Ruby icon just randomly and I saw a big banner that said Ruby on Rails website development that doesn't hurt. And I thought, hey, wow, you know, <laughs> maybe I can create a website for musicians. This sounds totally freaking crazy, but let me try and come up with something. So, uh, you know, I put together some images and some pictures and, and kind of some fake mock-ups. I mean, not knowing absolutely anything. Anyone can kind of whip up a visual idea of something that kind of come up within their head. You don't need any special skills for that. You just need a little bit of time and determination. Right. And uh, from there, that failed. What year was this? 2006. That, wow. Okay. And in that year, after the Ruby on Rails thing, this is what I did. And this is, I think, potentially different to the way most people do things. I didn't find a developer who would co-found with me or who I could pay with sweat equity or anything like that. What I did was I went to a website called Working With Rails. And this was a listing of all the most popular Ruby on Rails developers in the world. The guys who'd really made an impact in the Ruby on Rails scene. Right. And you can take the idea of Ruby on Rails and really transpose it anywhere to other development languages that have a bit of a culture around them. But I really started at the top, including the first guy I started with was actually David Heinmeiner Hansen, which was, uh, he is the guy who invented Ruby on Rails. And he's a pretty big dude. <laughs> so I reached out to him and asked him if he'd help me build Mad Mimi. Um, you asked the founder of Ruby on Rails to help you build Mad Mimi. Yeah. And, and I went said, down from there. I started at the top. So he said, <laughs> he said no. But that didn't really bother me because I, I went he's down to the next best, best guy. <laughs> you know what? I think he's doing okay. Yeah, he probably is. So I went to the next best guy. I went, he was number one. And I went to number two and number three and number four. Until I went, I got down to around number 30 and I sent them all very personalized emails, very appropriate. And two guys actually said, yeah, sure, we'll do it. You know, and it's like, okay, great. You know, here's this idea. I want to make it rock the marketplace. I want to make it, you know, this awesome musician website where they can do, you know, online press kits. And guess what? Maybe we can also just throw in, maybe they can schedule rehearsals and maybe they can book tours and maybe they can have a whole booking calendar, blah, blah, blah. And it was a disaster. <laughs> I knew nothing about how to build software. So what they did is they, um, you know, there was a lot of conflict because well, you were paying these guys, or they were yeah, 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 yeah. I was paying them their consultancy rates, wow. eating up that minute ten thousand dollar budget, and that got eaten up. Right. However, one amazing thing came out of it. At the end, they realized that the idea was really just a hodgepodge, and uh -huh. they invited somebody to save me. They called somebody called Jeff Patton. Jeff Patton is the world's greatest guy in tech uh, because what he does is he helps people take their idea from being a hodgepodge and just an idea and he helps map it, map it in a way that a developer can actually understand what needs to be built. Hmm. So he flew in from Utah to New York wow. and and I'm actually in his, in his book that he just came out with, which is one of the greatest books ever. It's called User Story Mapping. Great. And he helped me map the idea of Mad Mimi. And it became clear to me that, that it was impossible to build an app for $10,000. It was also impossible to build it for $20,000. But this app more looked like it would cost around $60,000. And it ended up costing about one hundred and twenty. dollars Now, so Mad Mimi was actually the name for the music app. not for Yeah, yeah, app. yeah. I kept the name. Okay. And, but it would cost uh, whatever, $60,000 in developer consultancy backend like, cost right. to produce this music app. I mapped it out, got the milestones together, and then started again with new programmers. And I did the same thing. 
I went to the best programmers in the world and I just went down the list. Ruby Except on Rails this, again? Ruby on Rails, yeah. I went down the list and I contacted 81 top-notch engineers. I just went down the list and there are thousands of engineers <laughs> and they ranked in popularity by those who have contributed to the core Ruby on Rails stack. Right. Yeah, and I've always been obsessed about just like working with luminaries because when you work with one luminary, you can get other luminaries involved. And when you work with other luminaries, it's easy to recruit because you're building on top of stuff that great people have done. So it's really appealing for top-notch programmers to, um, be, involved. to be involved and designers, etc. Kind of just use that rinse and repeat uh, pattern when uh, putting together a team. And it works. It's great. And it's really fun to work with luminaries because you learn a heck of a lot, whether you're back end or front end. But I always try and touch the stuff that they're doing. I look at their code and I try to figure it out and see what's great about it. And same as design. I try to like absorb the learning in the opportunity that I have because I treat programming or producing product as two things. I treat it half as a college degree and I treat it half as I'm actually building something here. The college degree stuff enables me to just inhale learning from like amazing people. Right. And, you, you know, and that's half of the consultancy fee. And the other half of the consultancy fee is actually to produce product or deliver features or functionality or whatever I need. And I shopped around this first piece of the plan to various consultancies and consultants or whatever. And I got various quotes. Like I asked them, how long do you think this would take? And it was very clear at this point because I had a map. Right. What did the quotes from the map, by the way, from uh, – you said his name is what, John? Jeff. Jeff, Jeff. Patton. J-E-F-F and then P-A-T-T-O-N. The cost of the mapping was free. Why was it free is because the engineers who were first working on the music app had a relationship with the guy and there was so much conflict involved in the relationship that, you know, Jeff, I don't know why he did it. The guy's he's a really amazing individual. He came, he just flew from, from Utah, Utah to, to New York. And he just did this to say to, I think maybe he had a relationship with the engineers such that he was willing to do such a thing. But I think Jeff's fees are many thousands a day. Yeah, I, I mean, would imagine Jeff is hardcore. You know, Jeff, I think he designed JetBlue's rewards program. He, oh, he wow. designed Universal Studios archival methodology. He's a methodologist. He comes and figures out how to take an idea and map it and build it. Wow. And I would not advise anyone ever to go into a, programming situation where they're building their idea the first time without starting with architecture and mapping. This is super, super duper critical in figuring out what's going to be the first iteration of your product, what's going to be the second iteration of your product. But the only way you can do that is by story mapping. And story mapping basically tells you exactly, uh, breaks everything down into small chunks that you can now use to get actual estimates from actual engineers and control risk. So, okay, so I mean, getting his yeah. book would obviously be a must read for anybody uh, starting out. Yeah, it's a little bit technical. It can be, but many people who I've recommended it to starting out who have no technical background have read the book and they're actually applying Jeff's methodology to various different parts of their life and their time management and their business life and anything. You don't need to be a techie to be able to understand the book, but it's written beautifully. It's really like his, he spent 10 years at least writing that book. Wow. And the foreword, there's some giant, giant software gurus who produce that foreword. So yeah, three books I, w I would say are indispensable and none of them are particularly kind of like ideological or in the realm of, to, yeah, they're technical. They're like blue collar books is getting real by 37 signals right. is if you don't know how to anything about code, learn HTML and CSS. It's the 
fundamentals of the internet. Learning that stuff is fun. It's a little bit tricky, but anyone can do it. Okay. And uh, Jeff's book, which is called User Story Mapping. We'll definitely link to all of those books in the show notes. So anybody awesome. listening, you know, could just visit our show notes page and uh, link to everything there. So, okay. So basically, so you had this new map. You had no more money, but and you went out again and you got new programmers to give you quotes. And what happened from there? So then I started begging, <laughs> begging, <laughs> begging people for money. I started asking family members. I uh, started, yeah, I, I raised the money from family, really. I, just little bits here and there. Well, how much? And, uh, so you said it was $60,000? Yeah, I raised a hundred k because I also needed to survive myself. Right. During that time, I, you know. You were was, married at this time already? I was married. I had a child who was like one. Okay. And yeah, and, and then I, I lived off, I think, $1,800 a month. That was my salary. Wow. And I lived in an apartment in New York City. I didn't have windows uh, that faced to the outside. Thank God it was in Park Slope and it was a pretty area. But yeah, I lived off very little at that time. I, I built a thing in a coffee shop. Uh, you know, that's really where I spent all day long. I got a latte, one, one latte a day. I spent all day long at the coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> and they were tolerant. I paid $5 for the latte and I, I gave a $5 tip. Right. And it was fine. I mean, you know, I wasn't the only person who was doing that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. So, you know, let's continue with this story and then we'll get back to the how Frumkite came into play. Yeah, so, I'll finish the story up quickly. Yeah. I, I got the 100000 I started paying the developers really according to the map. Jeff became more and more unavailable. He was busy, super, super busy. I mean, I tried to get him to come to GoDaddy to do a talk and he's booked solidly for the next year. Oh, wow. So, you know, I mean, to expect him to help me coach the developers through the map and help me manage it was very difficult. So I had to kind of blunt my teeth and figuring it out myself, which wasn't easy. And I made a lot of mistakes and mistakes are critical to be able to learn. So please, everyone, just make mistakes. It's much better than to make, uh, you know, mistakes in process and granular, granular aspects of process rather than to try and avoid mistakes at all costs and, and end up, you know, not having Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and the Mimi, again, you know, the JavaScript developer who I hired, he was responsible for writing the prototype script library, which was uh, the competitor to, you know, jQuery, which is now really the dominant JavaScript library that people use uh, for their apps. Just always focusing on the fundamental ideal of I always only start with luminaries and I work my way down. Just start at the top and I work my way down. And then the Atlas, you know, it launched in 2008 in April. There was no fancy launch. It was just basically this website went live. I got a blog post right. on a few places because of these luminaries. You know, I could use their names and it was, it was, they, 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 I got just one or two posts. I got a post in Mashable and I got a a post on Ajaxian, which is a geek blog. And um, I was in Starbucks. One person signed up, one person signed up, whatever. I was and just there's responding. still a music app at this point. No, 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 no. Six months into development, I pivoted. I changed. Oh, okay. And then so, it launched yeah. three months after that as an email app. Oh, okay. So what happened? You said, hey, you know what? This music thing is just not working. We have the team. We have the money. What made you decide? It was one guy. It was one engineer who I was paying, right. Dave. And it was me doing all the front-end design. Then I got this JavaScript dude who I was learning a ton from, Toby. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just I called Jeff six months into the thing. I thought, like, just I'm getting scared. Like, musicians, I don't understand them. And, you know, this whole interface thing, we can totally, or we, me, or whoever could really infuse something different in the email world to build an email newsletter, which is part of me running a business. My jingle business is by sending emails to creative folk. Right. And I hated the idea of templates where you plug content into boxes and then you have to like choose a template like and be tied into that template. So I, I was like, I'm going to try and do something a little bit innovative in email, but the stacking idea, by the way, that everyone uses now, right. that was 
that was completely unique to Mad Mimi when we started. And now it's used by Emma and MailChimp and you name it. It's a modular thing that in 2008, they all were using templates. Right. And I, I was trying to be anti-templates. Like I'm going to try and be anti something in the what email space. Who was the big competitor back then? Constant Contact? Yeah, 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 yeah. Constant yeah. Contact. MailChimp was not a competitor back then. Right. And But by bit, uh, the app was just cutesy going for people who really couldn't use their computers. Really like basic, basic technical audience, like not fancy schmancy because I was that audience and I built the app for me. I didn't build the app by surveying my audience or figuring out what my customers wanted. If I empathized with what I thought was the customer and said, what experience would I love if I was trying to do an email newsletter or an email promotion or whatever? And that kind of brought us very, very organic growth, no marketing. It was all word of mouth. Um, until there were significant revenues in the app. And then, uh, thank God, GoDaddy bought a, you know, a very productive product. So, I mean, that was from, you really got it going 2007 and then 2014, seven years later is when uh, GoDaddy uh, bought it from you. Yeah. And did Bob Parsons contact you himself or how did that work? So Bob Parsons is out, out of the day-to-day operations of the company. He's still a minority shareholder. But oh, right, right. He sold. It right, got right. acquired. Yeah, he sold GoDaddy to KKR. And Silver Lake Ventures in 2011 or 2010 right. or something like that. And then okay. they kind of been responsible or they're, you know, changing the company around, getting a more of a competitive technology force. They've got to have a big office in Silicon Valley where a lot of their new product stuff is happening. Right. By the way, just a, a funny uh, interjection here. I was using GoDaddy, I think, within months after they launched where I would call and I would speak to Bob Parsons himself. He was sitting at his, in his kitchen wow. you know, talking with his wife. And we used to schmooze it up, you know, for hours at a time. That's unbelievable. Yeah. That is, that's seriously history. Amazing. Yeah, that, I mean, wow. that's how far I go back in the domaining world. But uh, insane. That was, wow. that was very uh, fun. And he was brilliant back then. Just a, really a sweet, nice guy. He still is. You know, obviously, I don't have any connection with him, you know, since that time. But uh, I just remember back in the early days, you were able to call GoDaddy and speak to Bob himself. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So how did this happen? You were looking to be acquired or they contacted you? No, I was not looking to be acquired, you know, because the application was profitable, because it was making a lot of money, because there was a lot of people using it. You know, of course, it wasn't utopian. Everything is hard to make good. There's no such thing as free money. Right. But and then uh, Stephen Aldrich from GoDaddy reached out and... Yeah, I got, I got thinking that, you, you know, the synergy with GoDaddy actually makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of crossover with the type of users who enjoy GoDaddy and right. Mad Mimi user. And I, I just felt that GoDaddy was a way to really help Mad Mimi reach a heck of a lot more of an audience. Right. And uh, also the vibe of GoDaddy's new leadership team with, uh, you know, Stephen and, and David Popowitz and a whole bunch of new folk that are based in Silicon Valley. It's got a good energy. So this is 2014. Had you moved to Israel yet at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been living in Israel for six years. Oh, wow. Okay, so, um, how, so let's go yeah. back to the Frumkite. So how did that come into play? How did you get from uh, New York to Israel and all that stuff? So after I realized I could work remotely while I was in New York, it became evident to me that, you know, maybe we'll come try and check out Israel. Uh, not necessarily to live here, but whatever. Uh, we came here for two months, my wife and I. And the oh, so moment you came we... before you became from, you, be- you came to Israel. No, no, no. I, I became observant before I got married. My wife is from from birth. <laughs> oh, okay. And she, uh, yeah, yeah, I became observant like about three years before my wife and I met. Oh, wow. Uh, we met in 2005, I think. Oh, so you became uh, from before you yeah. actually started Mad Mini? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. And I started it. Um, was it Chabad or you just like what? No, like whatever. Not specifically. It's just like a weird story. Except for another podcast. I became observant through, yeah, really bizarre. Thank God, like crazy Ashkacha. And right. you know, one of the core things was actually realizing that I, I needed to make Mad Mimi remote because I didn't have the confidence to kind of feel like I had a place in the tech scene, you know, in New York. You know, I, I tried to go to a few I don't know, incubator kind of group meetup things and right. I was a reject. I was a social reject in, the, in those things. What am I like? Yeah, with my weird kippah and like, <laughs> you know, weird like kashrut and like weird this and weird that. Right. It just well, it didn't fit. I just kept on plugging, plugging away at it. The biggest thing I think that might affect me if I kind of went back in time is um, a confidence issue. Can hmm. I really go against fancy schmancy Silicon Valley hipsters riding on their fancy schmancy like, you know, Faraday bicycles right. as like some, you know, dude with like, you know, tzitzit, and like a beard. Like, I don't know. Do I have to be in San Francisco? Do I have to be in New York? Do I have to be somewhere specific to be able to like have the inspiration to create a really top-notch tech product? Right. And the answer is no, except it's hard to see that from the outset. I don't actually know how it happened, but at some point I really just said, they're all wrong and I'm right. <laughs> and like I just like told it to myself in a way that I really just like forced myself to just believe it and just push on. You know, this is very inspirational uh, yeah. for, you know, the from world and for people that feel, hey, you know, I can't be part of the scene. I don't, as you're saying, you don't have to be part of the scene in order to have a successful company. I think most people, the scene is for two things, one recruiting and two for raising funds. But if you can yeah, put and the that right scene people, is defeating, yeah. like, you know, I invest in a lot of companies right now, uh, you know, seed stage stuff. I'm telling you the scene, all the scene does is produce sheep. It just produces sheep. Ah, this guy has this good idea. This guy has this good idea. To belong to a scene means that you do the things that that scene does. By definition, it is problematic and stifling for sort of free, innovative ways of not only producing technology, but designing a company, designing a company's culture. Just like all figuring out that sometimes you don't need funds, but your whole scene around you is obsessed with like the success of a company being defined by like, getting a series A or getting such and such evaluation, it's such nonsense. Hmm. Like it's all relative. Like if your company needs a series A in order to function as a independent thing, then that that's fine. But not because like it's a thing to do. Your goal is to try and get to a series A or series B or, or this or that. I mean, it's like a disease of, of these scenes. And, and even, I mean, I don't want to wholly speak out against incubators, but right. you know, I don't know what I, incubators in, in many ways are, antithetical to free thinking among young entrepreneurs. So therefore, it's actually great to be a remote person who can't fit into a scene. It's actually a significant advantage if you have your sole objective being hiring the luminaries, just going for the top-notch guys. If you're looking for a designer, pound Dribble. Dribble is a big designer website. Sure. Look for the guys who've got 20,000 followers. They're followed by other designers. Look for the guys who've got like hardcore. Just look for the hardcore people and all of a sudden, your confidence gets built up by the people who you're able to remotely work with, not by your scene or, you know, how, you know, how, how pristine your, you know, hipster beard is. Right. You know, what you're saying is so true. You know, I once learned in uh, sales, you know, probably about 20 years ago, 
maybe 15, 20 years ago, that it takes the same amount of time and effort to contact somebody at the top as it does somebody at the bottom. For sure. She may as well go at the top. I think people have an inborn fear. And this is something I've talked about in previous podcasts. People have an inborn fear of failure. And like you said before, making mistakes is good, right? I mean, you're talking more about coding, but I think in general as an entrepreneur or someone that's creating something, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. Yeah, and I think even creating a little failure fund is not a bad idea. Even when you're building a house or doing anything small, I always set aside a percentage of that expenditure to be a failure fund. Interesting. Um, And also, if you think about your attacking the top and really trying to do things that way as 50% college experience, like lessons in software development, then your objectives are twofold. The one is, you know, oh, I hope this guy like responds to me or I hope this guy does what I want him to do. And the other half of that investment is really learning. Let me take this as an opportunity to learn how to kind of optimize my process and and learn from like, what mistakes are going to come out of here? Well, I don't know yet, but I really want to find out. So I'm kind of like, I'm going to pay you a lot of money to learn some mistakes, please. Um, And it's positive. Right. Okay. So are you still working for GoDaddy or you said you're doing investing, angel investing? Yeah, I do angel investing on the side. I mean, that's not, you know, we'll see if it's the right decision in a few years or not. But <laughs> I work for GoDaddy. I lead the Mad Mini product and, and part of their uh, the leadership team uh, currently. And uh, I'm also working on something else called Pinecone, which is, you know, I'm trying to see if I can do something creative and unique in the e-commerce, the very general e-commerce world. So we'll see. We'll see. I have no idea. Is there a, uh, you want to yeah. give us a little more detail about that or is that still under uh, wraps? I'm not a big believer in under apps. It's a cute little persona driven e-commerce app that you know hopefully should be live in the next month. Oh, fantastic. Uh, that's, yeah, it's just a real fun, fun, fun way of creating a product listing, easily selling it, sharing it socially. It's kind of like social e-commerce. No fancy, fancy, innovative idea, but mostly the innovation is happening on the way the app works and the way the thing makes you feel and kind of focusing on sellers who are not ready for an Etsy or a Shopify or big mm-hmm. commerce or something like that. Just really going for uh, people who think that their computers are trying to kill them. Um, so kind of like Mad Mimi, but for e-commerce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. Exciting stuff. And just going back to the angel investing for a second, what type of stuff do you like to invest in? And if there were any listeners out there that wanted to contact you or be in touch, is there a way to do that? The types of you know investments that I've been making these days are very much in the consumer internet space that have a revenue model, a business model where you monthly subscription or yearly subscription stuff that makes money, not like social ventures that they hope will sell for a gajillion dollars. Right. Yeah, just well executed product. You know, really functional, usable ideas where you're going into a crowded marketplace with something that just does things a little bit better than the existing players on the scene. Consumer internet, you know, going for consumers, nothing enterprise, you know, no hardware. Yeah, just like that's the scene that I'm kind of, that's the scene I know and that I And you're can strictly investing to. in Israeli companies or people in Israel or does no, not specifically okay. uh, anywhere in the world, really. And yeah, people can, it's pretty easy to actually find me on the internet. So <laughs> people just Google me. Lots of people find me through my LinkedIn thing, or it's very easy to find or put two and two together to figure right, out my email address on the internet. if somebody can't find you online, it's probably not the person you want to invest in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you can't find me online, <laughs> it's probably better for both of us. Right. Okay. You know, I was going to ask some other questions, but like, sure. you know, and but like really yeah. your whole story is just one big Ashkaka Pratis story. Uh-huh. It's really amazing, really inspiring, really fantastic. Yeah. 
You know what? Let me just ask you one more question. What is the best advice you've ever received? Oh, it's from Bob Parsons himself <laughs> with one of those crazy videos that I once watched in 2007 from the God Daddy. Yeah, I watched a video called The Ten Commandments of Doing Business. Okay. I don't know. The biggest thing that I learned, I think those Ten Commandments of Bob Parsons are actually quite good. But the biggest one was don't let anyone push you around. Hmm. Why was that so incredible for me? Is because at times when dealing with developers, I was under the impression that if this developer left me tomorrow, I would be completely crushed. The knowledge of the code would be only with him. The way the knowledge of the components that he spent the last months developing would be only with him. And I would be unable to find a replacement to carry on. And there are times where I almost got pushed into making a really bad deal by the guy asking me for um, a significant sum of equity. Wow. Or else they will. He's been working for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or else they would leave. And when you're in it, when you're working with these pro, like some, some really, really, really strong programmers, you think that life without them is basically really dumb. It's kind of like being in a problematic relationship. Sometimes it's kind of you like don't. Where Netanyahu yeah. and Bennett is right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now, you know, a strange type of leverage can get applied. And that's when that advice kicked in. Don't let anyone push you around. So if I was Netanyahu, yeah, you would, okay. you would push whatever, back whatever, Bennett? depending on whatever side, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> I'm feeling pushed around, and that's when I'm basically gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, are you tears? Put tears to my eyes that at one point one developer was pushing me to such a not good place. Right. And that's when I kind of got that advice. So like, you know what? Screw it. Whatever, whatever happens, happens. This guy's pushing me around. I'm gonna say buzz off, buzz off, like done. And that I think was extremely valuable to me because every single time I've been through this situation of somebody basically who holds a huge anvil over my head, yeah. dropping it, I survive, I get up and, and life goes on and you actually find that the next guy's always better. Hmm. So you actually fired this guy? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, right. and I found someone else. Excellent. Well, Gary, listen, I really appreciate you joining us. I really appreciate your time. Really, absolutely fantastic uh, episode. You know, there's so much to digest, so much to learn from your story. You know, I wish you nothing but continued Hatzlacha and miles with everything you're doing. I'm looking forward to Pinecone. That sounds uh, awesome. And uh, really great. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Cool. Cool, Nathan. And yeah, thanks for the invite. Sorry about the background noise. Yeah, don't worry about it. We're used to cool. it. <laughs> All right, Gary, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day and uh, good luck, Boomer. You too. Bye. Live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world, you are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Naham Kligman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach.